So for the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring the uh, book of Kings with a particular focus on the work of the prophet Elijah. Now, one and two Kings uh, was originally one book, and it's all about the various kings that ruled over Israel and Judah after the kingdom of Israel split in two. And I think there's a slide uh, just to... Yeah. So you'll remember uh, that King Solomon was the last king to rule over a unified Israel because shortly after uh, King Solomon's son Rehoboam took the throne, the kingdom of Israel split in two. Uh, The ten northern tribes, they retained the name of Israel uh, and they became the northern kingdom. And the two southern tribes became known as Judah and they were the southern kingdom. And according to the book of Kings, most of the kings of Judah were bad, and the worst would have to be Manasseh. He instituted child sacrifice, uh, among other things. Um, But all of the kings of Israel, every one of them, was bad. And the worst of the bunch was uh, the the, the, uh, king Ahab. Uh, He was married to Jezebel. And together, they had made Baal worship a big thing in Israel. You can knock that off now. So polytheism, the worship of more than one god, was common practice in the ancient world. There were different gods uh, to, to, to worship depending on where you happened to be, so kind of whose jurisdiction you're in, so to speak, and uh, what it was that you wanted. So for Israel, Yahweh, and when we talk about Yahweh, this is the one true God of Israel, uh, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the God that we worship, Yahweh. Uh, that's the, the, the Jewish uh, word for God. Um, so for Israel, Yahweh was the God who had brought them out of Egypt. Yahweh was the God who had defeated the armies of the Egyptians. And so if they were going into battle, it is Yahweh they would call out to. Uh, but for other things like fertility and rain and a good harvest, they were turning to Baal. Uh, now we might say, yeah, but Israel were fiercely monotheistic. They only believed in one God. Their scriptures make that perfectly clear. So how come they're worshipping multiple gods? Well, quite simply, there was a disconnect between what Judaism taught and what the people of Israel were actually doing. Uh, When we read the Old Testament, we shouldn't be looking uh, to Israel as an example of how to live our lives because uh, for much of the time, if not most of the time, they were in active rebellion against God. And we see a similar thing with Christianity. Sometimes uh, we look back on a supposedly Christian society and we conflate the norms of that society with the teachings of Christianity. So, for example, you might hear an argument that runs something like this. Someone might say, uh, well, Australia was colonized by a self-professed Christian nation, i.e. Britain. And we know that the original inhabitants of the land, the aboriginals, were treated appallingly from the start. Therefore, Christianity must be racist and cruel. Well, no, Christianity is not racist and cruel. The problem was that society was not behaving in a Christian way despite claiming to be a Christian society. So when we read the Old Testament, we need to be able to see when the Israelites were out of line and when they were living in obedience to God. And when we look back over Christian history, 
we need to be able to distinguish between those attitudes and actions that were Christian and those that were not. And the way we do that, of course, is by going back to the Word of God, the Bible. So uh, with Judaism and Christianity, there are often inconsistencies between what the Bible teaches and the way that people actually live. Uh, Our responsibility as individual Christians and as a church is to intentionally remove those inconsistencies, uh, and and that's an ongoing process. Uh, It's another way of saying that the aim of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus, because there are no inconsistencies with Jesus. And the massive inconsistency at the time of King Ahab was that Israel were increasingly turning uh, to Baal worship. Uh, Baal was often known as the, the great storm god, the ride of the clouds, the god who brought the rains. Of course, he wasn't. Uh, we know that Baal was nothing at all. Uh, Israel were very much mistaken, but that is what they were thinking. And it wasn't just that they were worshipping Baal and Yahweh side by side, although that would be bad enough. It was becoming increasingly difficult to worship Yahweh, the one true God. So you can see the situation. Israel would trust God with some things, but not with others. It was like, okay, we, we, we can trust God with this, but if we want that, we'll go to Baal. Now, the idea of worshipping more than one God might seem alien to us, but really this is just a trust issue. Israel going after different gods, this is a trust issue. Uh, the, the Israelites know that God is good at defeating their enemies. Uh, he's got a proven track record in that area. But they also need rain, and they need a good harvest. Their survival depends on it, and they're surrounded by nations who rely on Baal for that. So it's like they're hedging their bets. They're saying, well, we're not sure how good Yahweh is with rain, uh, so we'll ask Baal, because uh, Baal seems to be doing the trick for these surrounding nations. They've got rain. And when we see this as a trust issue, we can begin to see that actually sometimes we do a similar thing. I mean, do we trust God with every area of our lives? Or do we try to mix our Christian faith with the way of the world? Are we trying to give our allegiance to Jesus and the world at the same time? Because uh, that's no different from the Israelites trying to give their allegiance to uh, Yahweh and Baal at the same time. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We cannot compartmentalize our lives. You know, we we cannot say, well, this is Jesus's sphere of influence, and this is the world's sphere of influence. And we often do that. You know, we tend to think, okay, well, you know, church and family, that's that that kind of Jesus's sphere of influence, but everything else, well, that you know, we, we, we do things a bit differently there. So, you know, it's like, I'll trust God to help me to be a good husband or a good wife, uh, but I'll rely exclusively on my own skill in the workplace. Uh, I'll trust God for good health, I'll pray for that, uh, but I won't trust God with my finances. I'll trust God for church growth, but I don't know whether I can trust God to give me the courage or the words to share my faith with others. We trust God for some things, but not for others. And in our culture, Christians, and and I don't mean the, 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 the population at large, I mean Christians are moving further away from the Christian life. 
Um, too many people kind of hedge their bets. You know, they go to church once in a blue moon, say the occasional 10-second uh, prayer, and the rest of the time it can be on this worldly treadmill playing lip service to the Christian life. And it simply doesn't work. There's nothing life-changing about that. And if as Christians we try to live that way, in the end, it'll probably be the world that gets the upper hand. And I've seen this happen. It's so sad to see people drifting away from the church. But that's what happens because dividing our allegiance is fruitless and it's exhausting. We simply can't sustain it. And it was the same for the Israelites. They were attempting to worship Yahweh and Baal, but in the end, it was Yahweh that was getting pushed out. So God sent Elijah to tell King Ahab there would be no more rain. God was saying, if you want to worship Baal, this so-called rain god, well, okay, I'll show you who's in control. I'll stop the rain, and let's see how much Baal is able to help you then. So this was decision time for King Ahab. Would he continue to worship Baal, or would he repent and put his complete trust in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true God of Israel? The fact that Elijah had to go into hiding uh, kind of gives us an idea what side of the fence Ahab came down on. But it wasn't just that uh, Elijah was in fear of his life. That's not the only reason that uh, he fled. Um, here was this man of God, this man who had become God's mouthpiece, and he was abandoning King Ahab. And this is symbolic that God was doing the same thing. So when Elijah walked out on uh, King Ahab, so did God. And indeed, there was a severe drought that lasted uh, uh, a number of years, and it was in its third year when God said to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And when Ahab saw Elijah, he said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? It looks like Ahab may have blamed Elijah for the drought. He probably thought that Baal was so sick of Elijah constantly calling people back to Yahweh that Baal had got angry and had stopped the rain. But of course, it wasn't Baal who was upset. Baal was nothing. It was God. After almost three years of drought, Ahab still didn't realize that he and the nation were reaping the consequences of his actions. And again, as Christians, we, we, we can often see something similar happening. You know, we, we can lead a half-baked Christian life and then wonder why everything is going wrong. Now, I'm not saying that there are these really good, uh, sparkly, super-duper Christians uh, who are immune from the trials of life. Of course, that is not the case. The most godly and faithful Christians experience ill health, financial difficulty, fam family problems in some parts of the world, persecution, personal tragedy. Christians are not immune from these things. Uh, but if we make Jesus the center of our world, we will at least stand more chance of avoiding the self-inflicted uh, self calamities. And, and the reason I'm saying this, I think, is because for the first three decades of my life, uh, a lot of the most difficult things that I had to contend with uh, were, looking back, uh, largely my, my own doing. You know, if you rush into a career or a business venture without fasting and praying and taking it to the Lord, don't then wonder why it doesn't work out. 
If you abuse your body with drugs or alcohol or an unhealthy lifestyle or smoking or whatever it is, don't then wonder why you get ill. If you remove yourself from the body of Christ and pay lip service to the Christian life, don't then wonder why you feel alone, confused, distant from God, without peace. If you indulge in pornography, don't then wonder why your relationship is breaking down. If you don't give your finances over to God, don't then wonder why they're in a mess. As I said, any of us can have problems associated with work, health, relationships, finances, and so on. Um, you know, and, and often there is absolutely nothing we can do about those situations. That they, that it's external uh, factors about which we have no control. And sometimes the struggles that we face are kind of a mixture between the external things over which we have no control and the choices that we make. And sometimes, and this is the category we're really looking at today, sometimes the struggles that we face are purely to do with the decisions that we've made. Um, But the closer we are to Jesus, the less chance there is of our problems, our struggles, our trials, falling into that category of the the self-inflicted. Of course, the analogy breaks down because God caused drought in Elijah's day, but most of the things I was talking about are really just the natural consequence of bad choices. But the point is, Ahab was unable to make the link between his bad choice and the situation that was unfolding. Ahab promoted and encouraged Baal worship. He encouraged the whole nation to worship the rain god and then failed to understand why the country was in drought. Uh, By the way, I'm not making any kind of a link with the drought that we're experiencing currently here in Australia. I'm simply observing that when Ahab ignored God, things didn't go well for him. Things didn't go well for the nation. And I think we can often see uh, that pattern in our own lives. It's almost as if we we voluntarily walk out from under the umbrella of God's protection. So Ahab's still not getting it. He can't accept that his actions have brought calamity on Israel. Uh, And uh, as Elijah said, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. So Elijah ups the ante. He persuades Ahab to summon all the prophets of Baal, that's 450 of them, as well as all the prophets of Asherah, that's a a goddess that was being worshipped at the time. There were 400 of those. So Ahab gets all these prophets together, and Elijah lays down the gauntlet. He proposes a contest to determine whose God is the real God. And here's what he proposes. He says, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you can call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And that's what happened. The prophets of Baal, they chose their bull. They cut it into pieces, they put it on top of this huge pyre, and they started to invoke their god in the hope that Baal would burn up their, their bull carcass with fire. Uh, they danced around the altar from morning till noon, and nothing happened. And in fact, Elijah begins to mock them. Uh, he, he says, shout louder, surely he is a god. 
Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and needs to be awakened. So the prophets shouted all the louder and they started to cut themselves to try and get Baal's attention. And you can imagine it, can't you? 400 prophets dancing round, shouting and chanting, dripping red with their own blood. It's actually quite a disgusting image. And they go right through to the time of the evening sacrifice and still nothing happens. And now it's Elijah's turn. And he starts by repairing an an existing altar to Yahweh. It's been torn down probably by the worshippers of Baal. So he, he builds it back up. He puts this bull's carcass on top. And then he has them pour four huge jugs of water over the whole thing. Not once, but three times, I think, just to really make the point. And then he prays these words. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And here we have the point of all this. God is reaching out to a rebellious and idolatrous generation trying to turn their hearts back to him. This is God acting in love and power to bring his people back under the umbrella of his protection. This is God attempting to save his people from their wicked ways. Sound uh, familiar? It's the story we see right the way through the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. So the people are at a crossroads, Baal in one direction and Yahweh in another. And up until this point, it's like they've been trying to go in two directions at the same time. And that is even what Elijah said to them. You know, you can't, you can't do this. It's impossible. And it could be that there's someone here today who feels like they're at a crossroads, the world in one direction and Jesus in the other. Well, you can't go in two directions at the same time. That will tear you apart and you'll have no peace. And if you go in the direction of the world, well, you'll have no peace either because only Jesus can satisfy that deep longing within us. So what did the Israelites do when they were at this crossroads? Well, it tells us in in verse 39, it says, uh, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So it seems like they repented and turned back to God. They recognized that they could trust the Lord uh, with every area of their lives. They didn't need Baal. They didn't need Asherah. They didn't need anything else. They just need to put their complete trust in Yahweh, in God. And we might say, well, you know what? If I saw something like that, I would find it so much easier to put my complete trust in God. You know, if I saw a miracle like that, fire from heaven, then I would have no problem putting all my eggs in one basket and trusting Jesus with everything. But we need to think twice before we demand a sign. Jesus warned against it, didn't he? We saw that in the gospel reading, and we'll come back to that. You know, when we read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, I think often we can get the impression that there were miracles happening left, right, and center. Like the, uh, the, you know, as if God's people only ever had to wait a few days between these awesome miracles. But actually, the kind of thing that we're reading about today uh, is incredibly rare. Uh, The Bible covers a period of thousands of years, and such a dramatic ending to a drought only occurs once in all of Scripture. 
And of course, a generation that witnessed God's power in the most dramatic way was the Exodus generation, the people that God freed from slavery in Egypt. They saw the 10 plagues of Egypt. They witnessed the parting of the Red Sea, the column of uh, cloud and fire that guided them and all the rest of it. But that generation repeatedly rebelled against God and refused to trust God. They had uh, seen God defeat the Egyptian armies, and yet they were afraid to enter the promised land. They were intimidated by the people who lived there. They didn't think they could defeat them, even with God on their side. And then even with this miracle that happened in the days of Elijah, God burning up Elijah's offering with fire. It's an incredible miracle. And uh, the people turned back to God. But when we read on, we have to ask ourselves, well, how genuine or lasting was that decision? I mean, next week we'll see that actually it didn't have any huge long-term impact. It didn't change, actually, the trajectory that Israel were on, this rebellious trajectory. And in fact, within a 100 years, the northern kingdom of Israel was uh, defeated by the Assyrians and effectively ceased to exist. And then in in the New Testament, you know, there was a, a huge amount of evidence, for example, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, not to mention all the other miracles that he did. And yet the crowd still demanded his crucifixion. They knew that he'd raised Lazarus from the dead, There could be no doubt about that. They still wanted him crucified. And then there was even more evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And yet his followers were persecuted, hounded out of their homes, uh, imprisoned, in some cases executed. The religious authorities wanted to close down this Christian movement, even though the evidence for Jesus rising from the dead was and is overwhelming. So it would seem that there's not a direct correlation between the witnessing of miracles and faith, regardless of what we witness. If we don't want to believe, we won't believe. And with enough time, anything that we witness, we can explain away. You know, once it's far enough back in history, we start putting, if we are that way inclined, putting a different uh, slant on it. Uh, In today's gospel reading, the Pharisees asked for a sign and Jesus refused to give them one because he knew that their hearts were hardened against him. Didn't matter what he did, they wouldn't believe. They hated him. But look at Jesus' reply. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah with three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Of course, the three days and three nights that's being referred to there is uh, Jesus' death and his burial and his subsequent resurrection. Our faith, our faith is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died and rose to new life so that if we put our trust in him, we too will experience this new life. Miracles do happen today. Miracles do happen today. But our faith is not based on miracles in general. Our faith is based on a particular miracle, the miracle to which all other miracles point, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Israel were holding on to Baal and God at the same time, but it didn't work. 
and God was being pushed out. Not because Baal was more powerful. We know that Baal was nothing. He was a made-up God. But God was being pushed out because he allows us the freedom to choose. God even allows us the freedom to reject him completely. And God will respect our wishes, so to speak. A lot of Christians today try to hold on to Jesus and the world at the same time. And it doesn't work. If you do that, at some point, Jesus will end up being pushed out of your life. A decision has to be made. Baal or God? Jesus or the world? We can't have both. But God gives us every reason to choose him. He comes in search of us. He reaches out to us. He tries to turn our hearts back to him. That's what today's passage is all about. God set fire to Elijah's offering. Even though it's a a wicked and adulterous generation as it was who asked for this kind of sign, even so, God set fire to Elijah's offering uh, so that the people would turn away from their sin and abide in his love and blessings. And for us, God has done something far more surprising and phenomenal. He's entered into creation in the person of Jesus Christ. He's died on a cross for our sins. And he's been raised to new and everlasting life. And if we feel like we're at a crossroads, then the way to enter into that new life is to wholeheartedly choose Jesus. And if we have chosen Jesus, but we feel like there's something missing, then it could be, it could be that we're still trying to hold on to the world. So let us resolve to give every area of our lives to Christ. Not just this little bit over here or this bit over here, but everything, every aspect of our lives. Let's give it over to Christ. Let us trust Jesus with everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, at first glance, this passage about sacrificing bulls and these great miracles and all that we read about today, at first glance it seems to have nothing to do with us. Uh, But actually when we realize that this was a trust issue, Israel couldn't trust you with everything. And then we begin to realize that actually we do the same thing. We, We don't always trust you with every area of our lives. Trust you in a way that we're prepared to step out and change the way that we do things because we know that your way is the right way. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will fill us and empower us with your spirit and give us that gift of faith so that we can step out and make the changes in our lives that will show that we really do trust you with everything. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.